I, the only music of his that I really like really heard is the soundtrack to that um the insult the thing? T- that, yeah TFW no GF <laughs> damn I haven't heard that is it good I, I, it's fine it was good in the movie like it worked like it was very appropriate music for the did you watch it Mm-mm, not yet I, I wanted to but then it was taken off streaming services or whatever to be like oh we're we're gonna wait to you know, get funding for this or something but yeah, I've it, seen I've seen her talk about it though um. I mean, you probably don't need to watch it. I, I feel like you've spent enough time online to already know what it is. <laughs> I just reek of insult them to you. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I was talking. Um, I, I, li- I listened to a couple of your podcasts. It's great. Awesome. Thanks, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I checked out the uh, the one that when you were on Charlie's live stream. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, yeah. that was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, water. Uh-huh. Um, tight. Well... Any questions or anything before we start yapping? No, I like this uh, this flow chart you put together. This <laughs> is like infinitely more research than oh, I ever did. For, and you uh, printed it out. Yeah, dude, I'm like, I got like a professional office situation here. Legit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, cool, man. Well, stoked to chat about your album and stuff. Uh, so, I mean, anybody listening, coming in, eventually, uh, Jeremiah Simmerman with me right now, uh, clarinetist, electronics, uh do you call yourself like a multi-instrumentalist or composer or just uh, read? yeah i mean i don't but i probably could you gotcha, know yeah. um at least you know like on the last couple of records i've done i've played more than just woodwind instruments but you know i wouldn't you know like i play synths but i would never describe myself as like a synth player like keyboard player or anything or just variations on the clarinet do you do bass clarinet too i have one i play i don't I don't practice it enough to like do it publicly. Let's say that. Gotcha. But yeah, I'm looking at it on the shelf right now. It's <laughs> like staring back at me, giving me a dirty look. Yeah. Well, uh, the way I always start these is asking people about coffee and how yeah. coffee fits into your life. And, yeah. uh, you know, if it does, or if you have a different beverage you like that makes you go up or down. Either mm-hmm. way. Well, I actually quit drinking recently. Alcohol. Okay. Uh, so like right now, like my coffee intake is like through the roof. Like every time I take a piss, it smells like a fresh fucking pot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, like my coffee routine is like pretty deep. I actually, um, when I was uh, age nineteen to twenty one, I worked as a barista, um, and was at a place that actually was like very serious about about coffee culture and and this is long enough ago that it it isn't quite like it is now where you have like baristas who are like sommeliers you know where they know like the viticulture and the you know the Mm -hmm. you know the farmer's name and all that shit but but enough that like a lot of the fundamentals i learned about coffee making i still even though like so my coffee routine is for every morning, um, I have I have a Chemex if I'm making more than one cup I use. Um, but generally, I'm just making one big cup for myself. Um, and I'll use, I use this OXO, like one cup pour over that's like really great. It's kind of like the clever coffee concept, oh, but without yeah. the like the release. It just has like a really nice slow drip built into it. Yeah, cool. Um, and so, but as far as like fundamentals, like I always drink coffee out of glass, like never out of porcelain, just because it, it somehow drinks cleaner to me that way okay um i fresh grind for every cup that i'm making um i always heat the glass before i put the coffee into it um but after that like it's it's pretty low brow like i don't go for like like the single origin intelligentsia counterculture stuff um 
I get my coffee. There's a coffee roaster in New York called Puerto Rico. And they've been in New York for like over a hundred years. And it's like perfectly good coffee. It's not, you know, it's not going to be entered in any competitions with like, you know, latte art, but. And handlebar mustaches and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. No, no suspenders <laughs> and, you know. I'm actually using the OXO, uh, not the single cup thing, but like the, the big boy brewer, the auto drip. Yeah. And it's pretty nice. Yeah. It, it's great, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't. The coffee culture thing, at least here in New York, has gotten to like that level of like pretentiousness that I think Portland had on lock, you know, <laughs> yeah. 15 years ago. Um, and a lot of that stuff, like whatever, and, and you, I'm sure you could speak to it more. And I'm sure this is like, you know, I'm sure there's like, it's, it's comparable to the world of natural wine, where I've spent a lot of time where like, you really kind of have to be ingratiated and have like a, a, a much broader context to understand and appreciate it than like the layman. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that like counterculture intelligentsia stuff, like that single origin stuff for me is quite often a little too bright, a little mm-hmm. too acidic. Um, I, I don't, I don't think I'm like have a cerebral enough appreciation to like, to, to um, my palate doesn't really get much beyond the acidity and the brightness of it. I feel that. Um, it's funny, like I, I you know, ask everybody about their coffee habits and uh, Ben Monder, who's like you know, my, my dude, he uh, was saying like, oh, yeah, I just drink Bustello. Yeah. And I've turned to that because uh, like I, I'm not really active in the coffee industry now. So I'm like, oh. yeah, let's get this roast on. Like, let's yeah, get yeah. some caramels up in here. So Have you, are you are you a Bustello guy? I am currently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, I've got a weird thing with Bustelo. Like when I first, you know, I've, I, the whole time I've been in New York, I've lived in the Lower East Side, which is like a really specific part of, of, of the city. And, you know, historic, or at least for like the last like 60 years, it's been heavily like Puerto Rican, Dominican um, population. Not as much now, but like when I first moved here, I started drinking Bustelo right away. And I always have some in my house. Like I feel mm-hmm. like, like it's, I don't, I don't know what you compare it to, but it's like, definitely some like hometown pride totally yeah yeah it's good stuff i mean like yeah it's it doesn't seem to ever age so (laughs) no well yeah it always tastes like it was roasted like 50 years ago (laughs) yeah but in another 50 years it'll still taste like at that same level Mm -hmm. of freshness yeah Yeah. ability to time travel it's pretty pretty impressive but i can't i mean i used to drink coffee like i mean i would drink 10 cups a day and now i really just kind of do like uh, like a bit, you know, again, I'll put it in one of these, I think this is like a, maybe a 16 ounce glass. I'll have that in the morning. And then maybe later in the day I'll have like an espresso or another cup, but I'm a little like my, my, uh, my tolerance is like not, not what it once was. Yeah. Do you is just, there, do you, do you go all day with coffee? I kind of like, I try to, like, if I'm thirsty, I try to be like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get some water in here. Like this is 98% water. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Well, I remember when I worked at that cafe, you know, this is over 20 years ago at this point, but one of the guys, like one of like the like elder baristas, he saw me like pounding coffee after coffee. And he was like, look, man, if you're getting tired, just hydrate, drink some water. Like it'll actually invigorate you more than like the 18th cup of coffee. And I think it's true. I I think you're right. And I think that I still have some sort of poisonous macho sort of barista thing that I can't get over. So yeah, 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 yeah. So you, so you're not in the coffee game anymore. Not right now. No, I'm just, I'm trying to get the music uh, career back yeah. on track and yeah, you know, uh, you know, you can only do so much stuff in coffee. Like uh, 
I'm sort of like the nerd. Like I, I shine the laser through the coffee and tell yeah. you the, the total dissolved solids and the extraction and all, but um, yeah, I mean, not right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, you know, the, I, I don't work, I, you know, I've worked in restaurants forever up until recently. And the last restaurant I worked at um, had like a really serious coffee program. Uh, and, you know, so much so that you could only touch the, um, the espresso machine if you were certified trained by these guys from, from counterculture. Okay. And, you know, a couple of times I had to do the training and like every single time I, I was fighting to not like roll my eyes at everything. <laughs> this woman, she was like, you know, t- like showing me like how I should like position my body to tamp down the espresso. And I was just like, Jesus Christ. Like, was this like Katie Cargulo? Does she look like a goblin? <laughs> I haven't seen her in a while. I, I don't think she looks like a goblin, but she's like she's like that tall. She's like three feet tall. And, mm, I feel like she's like know, a, a, a pretty normal looking individual. <laughs> no, th- this person looked like they, you know, like you you scraped them off the bottom of your shoe walking out of Portland. Like, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but it's just you know, like I get it, and like if you're, you know, if you're working on like you know. If you're like learning to play a woodwind, like you need to work on your posture, you need to work on like your breathing, totally. But um, you know, I, I guess yeah, I'm just hydration is good, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I should try it, but um, cool, man. Well, that's a that's a good answer. Uh, yeah. Some people have bad ones, and I'm just like, okay, we're moving on. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I could talk coffee and wine all day, uh, so yeah, you might need to like push the direction. <laughs> Um, I, I did notice that on that bungle thing, you were drinking wine. And I was like, mm-hmm. am I going to have to break out the booze for this one? But, um, yeah, I mean, three weeks ago. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I've, yeah, I've been like, I've been off booze for three weeks now. And, uh, you know, like I said, I've been hitting the coffee harder, but yeah. Nice. And so that doesn't make you too like unleveled by being like extra caffeinated and like not, uh, yeah. You know, chilled out enough <laughs> well i think i've been i've been like heavy enough of a drinker for long enough that i think there was just constantly a lot of like natural sugars circulating in my system gotcha. so now that i'm not drinking wine every day like i think i'm just kind of tired all the time gotcha yeah well well i guess we can talk about citadels and sanctuaries <laughs> if you want at some point uh yeah we can talk about whatever i'm i'm, I'm down for it man i don't right. have to be anywhere Beautiful. Well, um, so I mean, I scoped out your album, and it's—I I love that's like a, a perfect album to sort of go over you more broadly, as well as you know the album itself. Mm. Um, but for listeners tuning in, it's like a coming-of-age album. You're saying, and sort of like pays tribute to a lot of composers that you look up to, trying to inhabit their space. These are like you know Morton Feldman, Alvin Lussier. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I feel like half of the people I'm very familiar with, half of them I'm not so familiar with. Okay. Um, and so I'm curious, first of all, what is the shit to check out from, uh, Tony Scott and Bill Smith? So Bill Smith, um, you know, he's kind of a mysterious figure, I think for a lot of people, because he really had like three kind of distinct careers. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, he was a master clarinetist. Um, and and I don't use that word lightly when I say master, Mm -hmm. because, you know, within, the musical tradition um, of the clarinet, you know, there's very few people who can very uh, seamlessly and naturally kind of straddle the different worlds um, of jazz, excuse me, of classical, of contemporary composition. Um, It's really like, you know, for, 
for most musicians, most clarinetists, it's like you got your area of focus. Uh, and he was like a really rare case where he did these things um, so much so that I've got a copy of it here somewhere. There's this book that came out in the 60s called um, New Directions for Clarinet by this uh, composer, Philip Refelt. And it's, it's like the Bible for contemporary composers who are looking to um, do different extended stuff with the clarinet, stuff that is, you know, unconventional and doesn't, you know, you, uh, composers are actually building these new written languages for it. And it was a comp when it first came out, it was accompanied by this record of a clarinetist demonstrating all these different techniques. And it was William Smith. Okay. So in the classical world, um, he worked under the name William O. Smith. And he was, you know, really a first call guy for for not not just um composers who were looking for people for clarinetists to perform their work, but for, you know, for academics that were really trying to sort of codify and solidify this, you know, this new language, you know, on the page. Um, and then beyond that, he was just like, I, I mean, I think he's the most swinging clarinetist I've ever heard. He, you know, most people would probably know him for, he spent a lot of time playing in the Dave Brubeck quintet. Mm -hmm. um, but he made a record and I have turned on, like, it blows my mind how many like heavy musicians I've mentioned this record to have never heard it and I'll send it to him. And I'm talking like heavy. So I'm talking like, John Zorn, Evan Parker, like heavy mm -hmm. heavies. And I'm like, you got to hear this fucking record. It's called Folk Jazz. And it's this quartet record of uh, Tim on B-flat clarinet, Jim Hall on guitar, beautiful, Shelly Mann on drums. And then I'm, I'm, I'm spacing on the bass player. But um, like if you're into that Jimmy Jufree thing of sort of like twangy kind of like country jazz, it's that like times a million it's just i mean he has like such like a buttery slick tone on the clarinet just perfect intonation and just breezing over the changes like with so much style and grace so you know even though his own work under his name his work under his own name isn't like super documented it's actually pretty limited um and you kind of have to access different like academic resources to find some of it mm -hmm. when you hear the guy play it's just like I don't know, like what I could compare it to. It's like when you hear Prince sing or something, or you hear like um, fucking Hendrix playing the, the guitar, you're just like, this is what this guy was, was here to do. Um, so the record folk jazz, without question, it's not right. the easiest thing to find. And if you can't find it, let me know. I'll send you like a rip of it. Um, it's just, it's the highest level, the absolute highest level. Um, so that, yeah, that would be, Thanks. you know, but, okay. oh, sorry. But the third thing beyond that is that he was, for years, he taught at Cornish College in Seattle. Oh, cool. So there's a whole school of clarinetists that have come up under him, you know, like some of the, like, most thoughtful, baddest clarinetists around spent time with Bill. And there's a lot of, like, you can go on YouTube, there's all kinds of um, videos of his, like, master classes and stuff. And he's just this, like, really beautiful, you know, he just died in 2020 at, like, he was, like, 90. Okay. But he was active a real long time and just had this really beautiful, like soulful way of communicating, not just musically, but like interpersonally. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. do, are you a hip to like Hadley Kalman? That's the only other person that's coming to mind from Cornish. Um, no. I feel like he was like Dexter Gordon's protege or something like that. Uh, okay. He's an alto player. Okay. Um, that's the only like Cornish bell that's, I'm, yeah, I'm from yeah. Tacoma, so it should be ringing all the, all the bells. Oh, so, yeah. you're from Tacoma? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's wow, but. <laughs> well, I just got a new pair of boots in the mail from Spokane. Okay. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that's a nearby uh yeah yeah uh, yeah uh so but then tony scott like you know he initially was another one of these guys who you know he kind of came up in the um he first started getting on like the late 40s early 50s as just like a killing swing clarinetist you know just bad motherfucker you know um and then at some point and a lot of people I, i've heard people credit tony scott with sort of inventing new age music um okay. because he made this series of records got a copy of it over there um music for zen meditation and music for yoga meditation uh zen meditation came out first i think it was like 1958 and he traveled to japan and made these improvised pieces with traditional japanese musicians people playing koto and then he went to india and made a duet record with sitar clarinet and sitar <laughs> um and they're just like fucking amazing yeah, I'm sure like that I mean in my mind like sitar and clarinet it's like whoa that's a timbral mix bag but like I I mean I'm sure that if you have two uh, you know killing people playing together then like they blend oh it's so gorgeous man like his like his clarinet almost doesn't even sound like a clarinet like he's got such a mat you know because and I'm I'm like not like super like I I can't talk about this stuff that formally necessarily but you know if you're talking about like traditional Hindustani music and Carnatic playing. If you're talking about, you know, Japanese music, you know, they're thinking well beyond 12 tones. You know, there's mm. all kinds of like super strict microtones. Um, and you can, I, I don't know how deep he got into that stuff formally, but he listened to him play. He, he's not playing out of tune. He's playing these really soulful passages that, you know, the intonation is just like, it's like this beautiful serpent, you know? Nice. Uh in this new directions book that you mentioned, does it cover like quarter or not quarter tones, but just like microtones in general on the instrument? Yeah. And a lot of it's from the perspective of the physical creation of those sounds. So, I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with like how a clarinet works, but unlike a saxophone, it's not just keys. You actually have tone holes. Okay. So, you know, a lot of it is sort of like instructing the clarinet. It's like this, you know, how you sort of run your finger over the tone hole, you know, Western music, it's up and down with a little bit of articulation. Um, but you know, if you're trying to get those microtones and really trying to create them precisely, you know, what, how you sort of adjust your finger over the tone hole is going to be really precise. Hmm. And so th when you say like the microtones here, um, I mean, is it more like quarter third, like, is it, you know, 17, uh, TET or whatever? Yeah. See, that's what, when I, when I was saying, I can't talk, I, I'm not equipped oh. to talk about it that technically. <laughs> I thought you meant about the clarinet thing. I was like, I'm sure you got it, dude. <laughs> You're clear. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I can. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I might. Yeah, I don't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm curious. Uh, I'm like, I will. A while ago, I got into this dude, and I'm curious if you're into him. Naftul Brandwine. Oh yeah, the, it's amazing. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Naftuli Brandwine. Yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> um, yeah, he's like. I mean, he's one of the two. Uh, like plasma clarinet masters of the 20th century it's him and um dave terris okay they were around at, like, roughly the same time naftuli is like more of like a uh, louis armstrong figure and then i guess like dave terris would be more of like a maybe like a a, 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 a dizzy gillespie he's like a little okay. bit later but enough that you know they probably crossed paths word so do you listen to that stuff or is it just like you have respect for it or you're you've been aware of it in the past uh, or, i've like, I, i've listened to it you know and it's definitely like i've listened more to people um like david krakauer and ben goldberg who 
you know, are a generation before me. And therefore when they were coming up, that stuff was sort of closer to their, to them, you know, that was like another maybe one or two generation before them. Um, but it is, yeah, if you listen to like Naftuli Bronvine and, you know, I never, again, I never really studied Klezmer formally, but as a basic structure, you know, the way Klezmer sort of works is that it's, it's not like jazz where you have like the heads and then you blow over, you know, and, you know, play a solo. Like Klezmer is really about like ornamentations, mm. you know? So like yeah. the way you play the melody is where you kind of like how you, how you style it up is like, you know, what makes you, you. And certainly those guys like created that language. Interesting. You know, much in the way that like Sidney Bechet fucking created, you know, jazz. It's funny, like you know, you talked to Tyshawn Sori previously, mm-hmm. and I, I listened to that interview, and I saw somewhere years ago he had a list of like these are some albums, and like half of it was Klezmer. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, I noticed that. I, I don't know Tyshawn that well, but I, I remember seeing that like he was like teaching a class at like a Klezmer workshop, and I was like, I didn't know that 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 was. But I mean, Tyshawn is one of those guys that can literally digest any musical information in in a moment and mm-hmm. you know create recreate it like a master nice yeah i mean i've seen him do it like i i, I there's there's some you know that guy's on another level totally yeah yeah um, very impressive stuff uh okay so who else is on this album uh in terms of uh the people that i don't know i i'm i guess the you know, you i know the, oh, go, oh, ahead. go ahead go ahead sorry uh spectralist dude uh yeah. What's his name? Uh, Radulescu. Is this Horatio? <laughs> uh, I mean, Horatio. I mean, uh, I'm, uh, he's not alive, but I'm sure he would correct me saying Horatio would probably, you know, Horatio or something like this. But yeah, Radulescu, man, like the, the Romanians, like him and Dumitrescu are like the G's. They, um, yeah, I mean, so you haven't, you haven't checked out Radulescu? Um, I've heard a little bit of uh, Dumitrescu. Is that mm-hmm. the other? Uh, I've yeah. heard a little bit of him, and I, I'm much more familiar with like uh, other sort of spectral you know, dudes, like you know, uh, Grise or like Mirai, like the French but, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, spectralism. I, I, I have a feeling any music we talk about, I'm going to have to start by saying like, well, I don't really know what the fuck I'm talking about, but um, you know, one of the things I really like uh, that that I really respond to with the music of say Radulescu um, and then Dumitrescu as well, who I don't know that Dumi, you know, Radulescu, I, I think described himself as a spectralist. Dumitrescu is still alive. I, I think he actually sort of resists that, mm-hmm. that label. Um, but one thing that's interesting to me about both those guys, is, you know, when I first started hearing about spectral music and sort of like trying to seek it out before I even really knew, um, you know, how this music came together or really what the term spectralism meant. And like, maybe I still don't really know what it means, but I got a very different feel from Radulescu than I got from, say, Griset or, or Mirai. And like, no disrespect to those guys, but that music always felt um, like more formal to me. It feels a little mm. more like a, um, like aristocratic almost. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, and something about the music of, of Radulescu, I mean, it's i think largely obvious but it just feels like kind of more like not messy in like an informal way but just like a little like a little rougher around the edges a little more fucked up uh a little more based in something um like primal you know and i don't mean that to sound like Mm -hmm. 
condescending in any way. Yeah, yeah, it just, yeah. it, it's like I feel it more, you know. So then, you know, when I go beyond that and I started reading interviews with Radulescu and, and sort of how he, he constructed his music, you know, just like my favorite director of all time, you know, he, he always said, it's like, it's about feel first. It's like, it's, you know, this is, and, and you, when you look at his personal history, you know, he left Romania and moved to France. Like, I always just got the feeling that Radulescu, um, and I'm, this is pure conjecture, but that like Radulescu and, and Dumitrescu are like outsiders, mm. you know, that they're sort of like, they know, even though Radulescu moved to France, became a French citizen, died in France. Like, I think he kind of probably always knew that he was an outsider, you know, and that inherently speaks to me. Yeah, there's something about like outsider art or any sort of creativity that comes from that realm instead of, you know, like you said, like the formal, like like somebody like uh, Piero Boulez. I like I love him, but like there is something where you're just like, dude, fucking like leave us alone. Like, yep. uh, like I know that you have so much funding to do all your fucking experiments at Earcom or whatever, but like. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, so there's, I mean, do you know the viola player Garth Knox? Mm-mm. Man, you got to check him out. He's like, I mean, he's this amazing, you know, inter- he's probably, I think Garth is probably like in his 60s now. Um, and he's like, you know, this amazing contemporary violist with like a real uh, area, like his, his real focus is spectral music. And he's got this record called the Spectral Viola. It's amazing. It's just like he's interpreting all these pieces. Um, and so I kind of found my way into Radulescu through, um, through Garth Knox. And when you hear these, I mean, if you if, when you hear these pieces, like it doesn't. At first, you're just like, is this guy just playing like three notes really intensely for a half an hour? <laughs> it's like kind of, but then it's just like within that, it's almost like that um that Earth Realm record that you and Charlie were talking about, where it's oh, like OV. That ah uh, yeah, that record like, is like one of the top like, ten. Like, yeah, yeah, it's like top ten shit to me. But I hear, I hear um, the Radulescu stuff. Very similarly way to the way I hear that that Orth realm there. Um, it's really like trance inducing. It's really um, like I, I really love getting lost in these like micro gestures that repeat, repeat, sort of slowly evolve, and you know before you know it, like you don't know if five minutes passed or a half hour passed. Totally, yeah. Yeah, and you could hear all the, like, just like the thing, like you said, with like the Mick, you know, the Mick Bar Orthrom thing, where you, you start to hear like this clicking of the, the the pick against the pickup, and you pay attention to that, and you kind of get lost. Like, you can hear that with a lot of Radulescu's music, whether it's like the clarinet or like string, you know, his string quartets. You start hearing all this like extra musical material that sort of like takes your focus away for a bit. Um, and it's just this really intense listening environment. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, when you did your piece on uh, citadels and sanctuaries, citadels and sanctuaries, uh, I mean, forget which one it is. Maybe it's the uh, uh, Radulescu one, but it like, has this fucking like, yep. and, and that like, it's such a, a piercing sound. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you said, I think somewhere that that's like a pedal, something mm-hmm. or other. And I'm curious to know just about generally what electronics means to you. Um, is like, is that like, applying a bunch of processing is it like are you doing like algorithmic procedures ever or yeah. like uh like how like what does that world mean to you i mean it's it's an evolving thing um when i you know the first time i started experimenting with using pedals and electronics within um an improvisational situation with my clarinet it was literally like a microphone plugged into one of those stupid um green line sixes 
you know, this is like 2005 or something like that. And it's been this, like this, this ongoing process. And it's sort of like, I could point to like specific, uh, like benchmarks. Um, like I made this solo record, uh, in 2007, 2008. And the, the record, the purpose of the record was to have a solo clarinet record, um, where I don't play any conventional material. It's all like <laughs> sounds and, and uh, extended technique and then heavily edited within Pro Tools. Okay. Um, so there wasn't like any formal, like that was like the end of the formal um, concept behind it. Uh, and it's, you know, it's all, it's all like very intuitive. You know, I start working in, so the, the record, sorry, I'm like going all over the place, but the record was like, 10 pieces of just heavily micro edited information. You know, one, the last piece on the record has something like 10,000 edits in it. Oh, damn. So it's just like, you know, all this like shit flying by as fast as possible. And I would spend like hours, you know, work just to get like 12 seconds of music yet. It took me like almost a year to make this record. Uh, <laughs> um, and so that became like a really, like in doing so, that sort of, I, I, I sort of like for myself codified this like studio language of like post production that I used on many subsequent records. Um, but with, with, the, with, as time passed, I kind of became less interested and less reliant upon this like hyper, um, post-production realization of music. And I, I became, you know, more sort of re-interested in just like improvisational language, improvisational relationships with other musicians and really, you know, having the bulk of the music take place before you start mixing it, you know, <laughs> perhaps as you should. Uh, and, and along the way, you know, my... The thing that was always really challenging for me was I did not have, there wasn't a conversation happening between this post-production thing and what I was able to do um, live. Mm. I spent like okay. years trying to sort of like figure out how to make, have them be a little more consistent with one another. Um, and so I've really spent like, you know, now my, my clarinet electronic setup is like, I have all kinds of shit dialed in. You know, I got this, this, uh, this beautiful, there's this guy in Bulgaria who makes these clarinet pickups that I, again, back to Bill Smith, as far as I know, he was like the first guy to use them. This thing that like drills into the barrel of your horn. Um, so you get like a really direct signal to send to like effects pedals. Um, so, you know, going back to that piece that you're asking about, like, yeah, the clarinet's going through this one crazy Japanese pedal I have that. It's just a glitch pedal. You know, you, you play something, you click down on the pedal and it starts, you know, you can, you can adjust the, um, the rate at which the, that, that glitch is happening, you know? Um, but it's like, it's really like a simple device. And, mm. you know, that was like, I, that piece is actually me playing straight through. There's like no post-production or overdubbing on that at all. And it's hilariously on the record. It's the piece that sounds the most like chopped and screwed or whatever. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, man, it's a it's a really interesting uh, sonority for sure, and like I don't know that I can listen to it around uh, a certain type of person, but um, no, yeah. no, no, that piece is not for everyone. But I feel like I, you know, that that was one of those pieces where, like, you know, I, I had I had like a I was in the studio for a month, you know, working on that record and some other records, and so I would I, I was like spitballing shit all day and. I started making that piece. I got like a sound going. I was like, wait, this is sick. This is sick. This is sick. You know? And I did a couple of passes. That pass is the one that made it on the record. And I'm listening back to it in the studio. And it's like, I think Radulescu would have dug this. Like, I, I, I don't feel like I'm, 
I'm, I'm definitely subconsciously as I play that sort of evoking Radulescu, but like I feel like I have to believe that if he if these types of pedals were available at the time, that he would have at least found them interesting. Totally. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And who can say? But uh, so the the only other person that I don't really know of these uh, heroes of yours is Nate Woolley. Hmm. But he's he's like contemporary, right? Like he's yeah, he's one of, he's one of my best friends. Word. Um. So I mean, I, I checked him out a little bit years ago, and then like recently again, and like it sounds like he's sort of like post jazzish, like I mean, like uh, extended technique, but like still something. I don't know. Maybe you should tell me. <laughs> oh, I mean, Nate, Nate's got um lots of different worlds that he lives in and has has lived in, and and sort of um you know. So I met I met Nate in two thousand three. 2004 um and you know at the time you know he's a few years older than me uh but we were you know pretty fresh to new york and we were performing there used to be a guy he's not alive anymore uh named butch morris i don't know if you're familiar with butch but no it sounds familiar though and he was amazing he was this phenomenal musical thinker he uh he developed a system called conduction which was a way of oh yeah 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 yeah, Butch, you know, his his thing, you know, he he was this amazing cornet player, actually. Uh, he didn't really touch the horn much after like the late 80s. But, you know, he developed a system that, you know, he could work with a small group of improvisers uh, quite often. And the the way that I played with him was with large groups where he could conduct the improvisers to create these musical structures. Um, and I met that Nate playing in that group. Uh, but, you know, over time, you know, Nate has gone on, you know, he's, he's done lots of jazz playing. You know, he grew up a jazz musician, like literally like playing on his daddy's knee kind of thing. And I I don't feel like I'm talking out of turn by saying that he's definitely got some like hangups and sort of like demons that haunt him from, you know, jazz pedagogy. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Uh, But, you know, he's, you know, it's incredible jazz trumpet player. He's, you know, he's, incredible noise musician you know playing through amplifiers and shit um in the last few years he's been um uh doing a lot of like interpretation of contemporary he just this record just came out of him doing this Ania lockwood piece um so he's he's and he publishes this amazing journal called sound american which is like you know he, he sort of commissions different musical thinkers to to write these pieces based on a theme for each issue uh he programs festivals he's just this really active um really humble beautiful soulful guy and you know and yeah the piece that i dedicated to him he uh and this is a friend i've made numerous records with him and played concerts um someone described his solo trumpet playing with amplifier as exquisitely hostile (laughs) okay and it's just like it's the most beautiful i I fucking wish someone would have said that about me because you know (laughs) i'd like to snatch that but you know, I, I think it's like totally like a perfect way to describe what he does. And, you know, specifically what he does with the amplifier is like he's built a new language for trumpet and noise amplifier. It's it's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Um, what, what's like the, the record to check out of his uh, for myself and other listeners? Uh, he might disagree with this, but I think his first solo record called Wrong Shape to be a Storyteller. OK. Is really special. And it's a I great think title, that, too. Yeah, well, when that it came out in like 2005, he literally recorded it in like the attic of his building into like a mini disc, and it's like super. It's just one hour long piece that's like super quiet. Like it's like he was really into like that um, lowercase shit at the time. Lowercase, you know, lowercase. 
Uh-uh. I, it's <laughs> I'm <laughs> lower. It was I don't know if people are. Do you know the record label Erstwhile? Mm-mm. Oh man. Um, oh, so, <laughs> th- th- yeah, there's just there's this whole scene of imp- uh, of improvisers. Um, some notable people would be like Keith Rowe, guitar player, who would probably again resist the term lowercase. Um, this incredible group uh, called Imperine, which is Greg Kelly and Bahab Rainey. Um, and, and you know, to I'm gonna give like the dumbest quick description of lowercase as possible, but it's like super quiet, like inc- like. Okay. Like if you showed up at a lowercase concert, you might walk in and say like, it looks like there's a concert happening, but I don't hear anything. <laughs> just the tiniest micro gesture. I mean, the, like if you did, if you just, if a normal person walked in off the street, they would think they were in a mental institution. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just, it's like literally little. So it's like the music's are really durational. It takes like, it's spread, spread out over a long time. The sounds are just like every little sound matters. Interesting. Okay. Uh, it's, it's funny how there's like, you know, there's such an arms race, like, especially in guitar, it's like, who can play the fast? I was like, uh, and like, uh, it's funny to see the arms races sort of become like weird shit, like, who can play the quietest? And like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, lowercase really had its moment in like the early 2000s. Um, and there's, you know, still people that I, you know, I don't know if people still identify with the label necessarily, but it was like, obviously it was never huge, but there were plenty of time, you know, plenty of concerts I went to and played where like, you had like 30 people in a small room, like totally wrapped audience. And like, they were really like, erstwhile in particular is the label that is like, sort of like the, like, you know, it's like the blue note of that shit. And the people that are into that stuff, you know, they talk about it like wine or or coffee or it, it's like it's like a real connoisseur's music. Okay. Yeah. Just scope it out. Yeah, I mean, like, is it that the type of thing that you have to really be at a concert for, or is it like, I mean, the records are. I think it works. I think it, <laughs> I think it works better on recording um, okay. because you can really give it a focused listening. How are you know headphones or on a loud stereo? You, you know, uh, but that's that's my take. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I want to be as close to the sound as possible. And in a physical space, you know, you, you can't always really control that. Well, I guess uh, that's a kind of good segue to um, the realm that I do know, which is like starting with Morton Feldman. Yeah. It's like this kind of like very quiet, uh, drawn out stuff. Um, and something that I, I dig about him is just like, I mean, A, the just the attempt to be like, I'm changing the scale of the music. Like I'm doing some fucking three hour pieces mm-hmm. and uh, that's such a crazy vibe because I mean, I, I was taking this uh, post-tonal analysis class in college and the guy was like a, a Zen monk. Uh, hey, where did you, where did you go to school? At USC. Okay. Um, I forgot the dude's name, Robert something or other, um, but he was like a, a Zen monk, very old. And he was just saying like, you know, at these Feldman concerts, it was just like by the end of it, it was only the monks. And yep. uh that's I mean, that's a dedicated practice to be that composer, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know my my you know Elliot Sharp, the guitar player. Yeah, I know of him. I, I don't yeah. know him personally, <laughs> but you know, he's my neighbor. He lives in the building across the street. Uh, he he studied under Morton Feldman in Buffalo as a young man, and um, he's you know he he I think he published one or two stories because it wasn't like a totally pleasant experience you know he was this sort of like larger than life figure who would hold court and sort of command the room and you know was very sort of charismatic slash obnoxious i think 
Interesting. Um, and he, I think he actually had, you know, I'm, I'm saying this secondhand from, you know, I know a couple of people that got to, to study with him and I've, did you ever read his book, um, Give My Regards to 8th Street? No, no, I've heard of it though. Yeah. Amazing. Highly recommend. It's, it's, it's a collection of, um, of lectures. It's not like he didn't like, you know, write shit, but, mm. um, I, I think he had like pretty dogmatic ideas. Uh, you know, El Elliot told me this story about, um, and I hope I'm not talking out. He published the story, so whatever. Uh, you know, he was doing one of his like senior recitals or something, and you know, Feldman was either his advisor or was in charge of him in some capacity. And in the piece, Elliot, Elliot had um, some improvisers at different like points in the piece, and Feldman walked up to him. He's like, he said, you know, where are the music stands? And, and Elliot said, well, these guys are improvisers; they don't need music stands. And Feldman stopped the concert, grabs the music stands, oh. plopped them down in front of the improvisers, and said, "Now you can start." Man, yeah, that's with an audience and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's funny um, with uh, Elliot Sharp. Like, I feel like you know, as a guitarist, I've been aware of him by name plenty, but um, in my mind, like, I'm such a Elliot Carter head, yeah. and Elliot Carter has his guitar piece shard, and so I feel like I've always just been like. Yeah, like something's just <laughs> intertwined. Yeah, Elliot Carter Shard, like Elliot Sharp. I'm just like shit. This is too many uh, similar sounds for me. You should, you should check out Elliot, man. He's deep. He's got like an intimidatingly large catalog. Totally, but he's definitely got like a, an incredibly unique language for guitar. I think I've I've seen him do some stuff with like Henry Kaiser and that yeah. dude, um, Alvaro. Do you know that dude? Uh, Alvaro, Alvaro Domine. Yeah. Yeah, I know Alvaro. Good, good guitarist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he can play definitely. Yeah, um, but but Feldman so. is is just like without question. Like if I had to like grab some desert island composers, musicians, thinkers, like without question, like he's coming with me. It's it's kind of funny also that you mentioned him being like larger than life because that's totally why I've heard. But then the, there are a bunch of interviews or not interviews, but like uh, conversations between him and John Cage on YouTube, and I feel like he always like. I expect him to kind of do the thing where he's like, I'm going to be the one that's like going to cut you off and like try to like whatever. But he's just like letting John Cage do his kind of like quiet, like slow delivery. And he'll just be like, what else, John? <laughs> it's like, yeah. whoa, that's how I was expecting. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I'm pretty, I'm fairly confident that when they met, even if just by a few years, Cage was the elder, Cage was the more established, Cage was sort of, you know, um, senior to him mm -hmm. so I, I think those dynamics don't don't die you know mm -hmm. like I, I have people that i've known for 20 years and i'm still like you know all right you're the boss mm -hmm. you know what i mean totally uh, i've also seen him talking to elliot carter though and i feel like he's meanwhile carter's scoffing at him but like uh, uh he's like you know just kind of like well this is what I mean, we need the three hour pieces and no, we don't. <laughs> um, yeah, I felt uh, at some point I gotta pull it up. But I, I, I Feldman like was like deriding the twenty-minute piece. He was like, "We got enough twenty-minute pieces. We don't need any more twenty-minute pieces." Mm -hmm. And it is really funny how quickly uh, uh, pieces sort of automatically just default to being twenty minutes somehow. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of the magic number. Uh, for you as a composer or improviser, do you feel like you always just kind of let a piece end up being how long it is? Or do you like, I'm going through this phase where I'm like literally trying to make uh, like 1,800 second pieces uh, to be exactly 30 minutes. Oh, wow. Uh, 
Yeah. So I'm like trying to like, you know, crunch it down to the, the millisecond. Uh, wait, wait, wait. What's the number on that? It's 1,000 pieces. Or 1,800 seconds uh, for 30 minutes. 1,800 seconds is the equivalent of 30 minutes? Yeah. It's so like 1.8 million milliseconds, I think, is 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so how many pieces would that be within the 30 minutes? Uh, I mean, like, so I guess what I'm trying to do is just have it be anything that fits into there. It could be one piece. It could be yeah. 30 pieces. Um, so, yeah, I'm trying to, like, have it, you know, get an algorithm where I don't have to fucking make decisions. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I would say like one of my life's great challenges is and will continue to be my relationship to time when it comes to music, mm -hmm. because my natural instinct almost always is to rush things. Mm -hmm. And it's something I uh, uh, pretty much always immediately regret if, you know, not shortly thereafter. You mean like rush the process, like the creation process or rush the duration of the like, you know, get the piece to be quicker? Uh, if I if I'm in an Excuse me. If I'm in an improvisational situation with other, or even with my, yeah, if I'm, if I'm improvising, I always push through too fast. I always have this like nervous tick going that I feel mm -hmm. like perhaps the other musicians or the listener is getting bored. Uh, I'm always sort of questioning, like, I just played that thing twice, you know, should I not even have played it once, mm -hmm. you know, or should you I play your licks? <laughs> yeah. Right. Should I play it 10 times? Like to me, I mean, I, uh, I'm perfectly happy. To listen to someone play the same fucking thing with minor variation for a half an hour you know mm -hmm. but getting myself to be able to commit to that myself has continued to be a challenge somehow it feels like some i don't know it's like this feeling like i always got to be somewhere i'm always running late or something uh do you feel like i mean if somebody was to be like you know jeremiah give me a, a, a 35 minute piece do you would you approach that as like I'll try to do something until it comes out to 35 minutes or like, would you go top down more and try to like break it up? If without shitting on anyone, I feel like, like many people my age, um, you know, a lot of us, you know, kind of came into these different worlds of adventurous music through the music of John Swan. That's, mm. you know, that's just, it's just is what, you know, he's a large figure. He's, you know, very prolific and, you know, there's a million entry points and exit points to these different musical worlds. Um, but I, I think like his way like of, of approaching music, these blocks where like it's literally moment to moment, thing, everything is just changing. I know for myself to get closer to the music that I want to make, I need to like really unlearn and get away from that kind of thinking because it doesn't serve what I want to do and it doesn't feel doesn't feel like anything I want to listen to anymore. Gotcha. That type of thinking, meaning like uh, having like a target duration? Having a target duration? Well, no, not necessarily that. Um, I don't want as much information as possible in a short amount of time as possible. And I okay. certainly don't want to listen to or do anything that I would describe as clever. <laughs> you know, like if, if there's like one musical like trait that I just want to completely like get out of my system as a performer and listener are these like clever turns of like, you know, jumping from one motif to another or, you know, referencing something that kind of gives you a moment to like have a chuckle. Like, I just don't want that shit anywhere near me. Yeah. I mean, in my mind, that's like a, a callback in comedy or something. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. I mean, who, who's somebody that in a pejorative sense is a clever composer to you? Well, Zorn. Zorn. Okay. You know, I mean, and I, I, I say that I'm trying to say that like with 
without any yeah, disrespect, yeah. you know, but it's like he has been this like larger, this incredibly large figure whose influence is like, you know, like all encompassing. And there was a time in my life where like that music was like, you know, it was a fucking revelation, you know, and it totally blew my mind open and was this like entry point, all this amazing music that, you know, I cherish, but it's just, it, you know, it, it, with, with improvised music um, specifically and specifically with like group improvised music, like so often it seems like, it, it's like a closed system. Like even if people say, Hey man, let's, let's do some improvising. You kind of, it's an improvised gig. You kind of already know roughly what's likely to happen. You know, mm -hmm. what the, what the arc of the pieces will be, how long the set will be, um, you know, what, how you're going to respond to certain kinds of gestures and, you know, what gestures you're going to use to respond to those things. And some, you know, at least in New York, it, it became really prevalent where like people were just jumping from idea to idea. Mm. And I just, I don't know, man. Like I, 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 I just, I don't, I don't want that at all anymore. Totally. You want um, cohesiveness or? <laughs> I mean, that, that stuff can be completely cohesive. And again, you know, look to Zorn, like he's got that shit locked up, you know, but, um, it's just, I, I want, what am I trying to say here? Like, I, I don't, I don't find any peace in it. I don't find any comfort in it. I don't find any, like, honestly, I don't find any discovery in it. You know, like discovery to me is like what happens when there's enough room for the unexpected to happen. And, you know, if you're throwing ideas at a wall, you don't, you could throw the same idea at the wall a hundred times before you have a revelation. Or you could throw a gazillion, you know, and it's like chaos. But mm -hmm. I don't want that shit. So I feel like you're kind of like a connoisseur of like sort of, you know, these more free uh, improv improvisational worlds of music. And for me, I'm much more of like a dictionary guy. Like I feel mm -hmm. like I'm like in the Maunder sort of lineage of like, I'm going to fucking know all the permutations of these four notes um, yes. or like the Carter tradition or whatever. But um, I, I guess like, Maybe that's like I, I love Ben doing free improvisation, but um, I feel like it's always something that I've not necessarily been comfortable with. And I could probably be great at it, but um, like, how do you feel like that whole process goes? Of like, like if we were to like improvise together, like, what do you imagine that sort of connection of uh, musical things to like be like in your head? Like well, feeling I each other out. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't heard you play, so mm -hmm. um, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, if, if the last five to 10 years of music making for me has been like marked by anything consistent, it's that I'm trying to get rid of, of habits that I've built, trying to, like I said, slow myself down. So yeah, if you and I sat down to play, I would probably wait for you to make a gesture. Mm -hmm. Um, I would, my default tempo would be slow. My default dynamic markings would be kind of light um mm -hmm. that's just where i'm at right now i would be more interested in um like acoustic phenomenon like uh mm -hmm. um you know beating tones and 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 stuff that kind of happens in like an extra musical way mm -hmm. um and i would try to meet that's something that's always important to me with improvising is to like honor the language of the other person so you know, I wouldn't expect you, I, I would want, I would feel best about myself and best about the musical situation if I could, you know, come to you just as much as you come to me. 
Mm -hmm. You know, it's not fair to, well, not fair. I don't know about fair. It's just like, it's just not interesting to me to like blow over someone. Uh, so you also you know you have the 5049 podcast and that's you're quite prolific in that had had past tense had 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 had. yeah uh when i was listening to it i was like you know appreciating that you have like i feel like you have a little bit more uh you're a little bit more of a smooth host than i am (laughs) it's like (laughs) uh, i imagine that you know like there's some grace in being like okay let me listen to what you have to say real quick like you know as Mm. the other improviser i'm struggling with that word um uh and so, like, there's got to be some overlap, just, just like conversation, improvising. Um, but like, how many, like, you know, besides like the sort of like, oh, it's gonna be quiet, and I'm gonna like feel you out. It can only be like what, like, like three to five different sort of trajectories, right? Um, I don't know. You know, like, I made, uh, you know, our mutual friend Charlie. You know, he and I made a duo record um, just before the pandemic. We recorded it in LA in like. Uh, late January, early February, 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've known Charlie, you know, we met when we were 13. Yeah. Um, so I've known him for years and we have uh, uh, a musical relationship. We have a personal relationship. But, you know, we got into the studio and, you know, sort of pretty quickly, I kind of like uh, began, pro- very, I'm saying this very lightly, sort of producing the session, which was like, you know, we sat down and had an idea going and it's like, all right, let's just focus on, you know, let's do like a Chelsea thing. Let's like, Let's let long, long tones sort of ring out, you know, and we record a couple of pieces like that. And then, you know, I looked over, there's, there's a piano in the studio. Like, Charlie, then jump on the piano. And he's like, well, I'm not a piano player. I was like, well, just fucking do it anyway. Play a couple, like, just play one chord and just play it over and over again. Um, so that was sort of like an exciting and fun way to like shape the session. And that's kind mm-hmm. of more like uh, in line with what I'm, you know, there's plenty, I mean, there's plenty of, places in my musical thinking and musical mind that are like i would say antithetical to like a pure improvisational approach and philosophy because i think like free improvisation like all music but you know it has um like a a philosophical aspect to it that Mm -hmm. is like crucial to the production of the music and you know, there's plenty of great improvisers who can fucking play their ass off. And, but you kind of know exactly what they're going to do the second you go to the show, the second you hit play on the album. And that's cool, but it's sort of antithetical to, I think, like the core spirit of, of improvisation, which is, you know, you, like, do you know this guitar player, Joe Morris? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, NEC, right? Yep. Yeah. Joe is, in, in my estimation, like, master improviser you know mm. like it's 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 his life's work you know um and when he talked i've played with joe a few times it's always great and um you know joe always says like when i'm playing music i don't want to know what's going on it's like i just always want to be in a situation where i i'm lost and i'm trying to to find my way to the other person mm. and it's like that that's 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 a philosophical perspective that's totally. that's a life philosophy that's not you know get on stage and fucking blow the audience's mind which is you know what um a lot of people do so um like you know i was talking to fred frith one time i think on the i don't know if this was a private conversation or it was on the podcast i can't remember but i remember he said something it was like so simple but he was like yeah night after night i never set up my pedals the same way (laughs) he's like because i want that aspect of 
of of indeterminacy and and having to discover new ways. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, man, interesting. Uh, what's his face? Uh, uh, Joel Joel Harrison. Is that his name? Guitarist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I interviewed him, and uh, he. I know he talked to Fred Frith, uh, but it's, it's kind of interesting uh, to hear about guitarists from other people that don't play guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was. I mean, but you know, Fred is another one who's just this like master improviser. Mm-hmm. You know, and so yeah, I would say like. Like what's really interesting to me is, and I, I probably wouldn't have said this ten years ago, but I want to hear someone who uh, has been building like one or two things over the course of a lifetime, not doing everything. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I don't give a fuck about that. Like I want to hear, you know, like Evan Parker, who is you know my hero, and has been developing this language for this. I mean, he reinvented the language of the saxophone, and you know, over the course of fifty damn near 60 years like it's been this really singular focus and you know the end result is music to me that like transcends the ether and is this like it's it's not about like sorry if i'm like speaking like in hyperbole but like that that music's not about this world that music's about communicating you know i don't know if this is for people listening i'm pointing up (laughs) it ain't about you know that music ain't about man that music's about the big man this is a strictly atheist podcast though um, <laughs> well then you're talking to the wrong guy but I'm, it's something it's not, yeah i uh no you're, I'm a, you're an atheist i, I mean just uh, just by uh you know like you know i, I carry a card of the yeah. atheist club um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I don't really uh, care anymore though i just was hardcore when i was young and uh, yeah. i sort of like like to still rep it um it's kind of interesting though that uh your breath piece is for mario diaz de leon instead of yeah. evan parker because uh, i feel like i think of evan parker as like the breath wizard uh, yeah. i don't know if that's a, a reasonable assessment but i mean that's like, uh, a musician that doesn't use breath <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean certainly part of his repertoire i mean evan you know among the many contributions he's made to the language of the saxophone you know, you know people circular breathe before him but his particular thing is like the master class Word. Um, yeah, I mean, so, do, do you know Mario? I, I don't know him, uh, but I mean, I like I have heard his music plenty of times, and uh, I, I'm aware of his place in the scene and stuff. You should, you should, man. I don't want to like tell you how to do your your job. But you should get him on here, man. That's someone who has a lot of interesting ideas, and you know, is really beautiful and articulate. Yeah, and I mean, his compositions are super beautiful too, in a way that's like you know, it's you know, these days I feel like there's such a like I am a modern composer, and it's like yeah. he doesn't sound like that. It's, it doesn't sound like it's like at all not modern or contemporary right. but um it doesn't feel like it has to like prove how modern and futuristic it is or anything no no again i mean i my 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 belief on mario is that he's working <laughs> uh with something bigger in mind than um uh, one, one second yeah Might be. <laughs> is that your dinner? No, uh, mail came. Uh-huh. It was knocking all out. Um, uh, I didn't want to be sitting here like, <laughs> bye. Right. Um, so I should close this door too, so people don't see my house number. All right. So we're at Evan Parker and the big guy, the big man, the chief, the chief. <laughs> 
Um, and Mario, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely invite him. That sounds like a, a, yeah. a great conversation to have. Um, so when you say like the big guy and, you know, like I heard you in the your podcast with Justin Fry uh, say like sort of looking upward. Then you mentioned vertical tension. And so like, are you on this Sloterdijk uh, tip too? <laughs> I see you. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I would say I'm like uh, a Sood's dilettante, you know, like mm-hmm. I have to read this shit. Like it's it's not a tough, an easy nut for me to crack, but, you know, it's definitely like when I crack those nuts, you know, there's vistas of uh, of truths that, that, that resonate with me. Uh, I'm definitely um, uh, the, the, I mean, I, I don't know how coded. You know, I, I feel like I, I suspect that you and I probably share some similar ideas about the modern world, mm-hmm. um, you know, and sort of the more time I spend in uh, the modern discourse, you know, the less time I want to spend in it and mm-hmm. the more time I want to spend looking to things that I, to which I ascribe uh, some aspect of the sacred. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, the whole thing of discipline, like, I, I guess I was, like, I totally agree with you. And, like, I, I, when you were doing that podcast, I was like, no, fucking get preachy, dude. Like, if not yeah. for everybody else, for me, like, I'll, yeah. I'll listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cause my woodshed is definitely not what it used to be back in the day. Sure. And I, I, like, I, I'm all about that. And so, uh, I don't know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this discipline stuff and, like, yeah. woodshedding and actually I mean, having standards. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I you know, by nature, I think I'm like actually a very undisciplined person, and you know, kind of, you know, I, I don't, you know, to use like a, a therapy term or like an AA term, like I don't show up as much as like I could or should. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, I don't. Let's see, what can we say about this? Um, I mean, my relationship to to my horn, and I don't even consider myself a wood like. That's like some self-doubt shit, but, uh, you know, I, I have a hard time even thinking of myself as like, you know, a clarinetist, you know, like that's hard. Really? Yeah. You know, it's, it's some philosophical shit, but you know, I have friends like, you know, my friend Josh Rubin, he's like, he lives in LA actually. Um, like master of clarinet, you know, he plays uh clarinet for the international contemporary ensemble. I can do anything, you know? And like, we're friends, we're colleagues. And like, I play shit with him and I'm just like, are you, you're not seeing through me right now. <laughs> like, I guess. but, but the thing, but the relationship to the horn is what's really important to me. Um, it, it's having, you know, I think, I think, you know, and no disrespect, I don't mean any disrespect to like people that don't play acoustic instruments, mm-hmm. uh, but having a relationship with an acoustic instrument that requires this uh, sort of physical rigor mm-hmm. um, is as important, <clears throat> excuse me, as important to me as any sort of like spiritual practice, um, be it meditation or, or prayer and reflection, these things that are also important to me. Um, because like in very concrete terms, you can sort of always it, it, it's it's like a a good way of understanding like myself and where I'm at um, on a trajectory. It's like how my my relationship with the you know my, how my ombudsman is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, 
if, you know, my, my clarinet's in the shop right now. So when I pick it up in a couple of days and, and I start playing, my, my armature is going to be a little fucked. It's going to be a little non-responsive. Um, the clarinet itself and, you know, kind of circling back to, or re-referencing, you know, this, this vertical tension thing, you know, the clarinet itself is an instrument and like guitar is this way. Uh, all, all of these acoustic instruments are this way that it's about re- resistance. Mm-hmm. You know, like to 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 in, to have a tone that's rich, to have a, a harmonic language that's rich. You really, what you're dealing with is resistance. You know, the way I set up my mouthpiece with the reed and the ligature and and all these things to really get to a place where the sound that's coming from the horn, um, that's simultaneously pleasing to me, requires rigor and it requires building. A certain amount of resistance you know you, you don't want to play on some flimsy ass reed right. that is immediately responsive you want to play on a reed that like you know mm-hmm. you got you got to you got to kind of like you know uh, like break the bu- buck a little you know what i mean you got to like mm-hmm. it, it requires something and so having that relationship and having like this you know in the shed having this like really clear if you're listening if you're paying attention like this really kind of clear understanding of what you're your your limits are of what your shortcomings are mm-hmm. and like looking yourself in the eye and be like no i'm gonna work on that like this isn't good enough this needs to be better you know it's actually mm-hmm. like you know it's not like you know being a war veteran call to arms but it's like a personal call to arms mm-hmm. of like i want to be better at this i want to be able to communicate with other musicians in a way that's meaningful if i'm just like fucking around on the horn you know like i wouldn't dare do that with another musician for whom I have respect. Like I want to bring something to the conversation that has, you know, a basis in rigor and a basis in thoughtfulness and a basis in, you know, I've coupled years of listening with years of playing. And, you know, if by no other virtue, by virtue of the, that very thing, it's, it's, it's meaningful. And, um, it, it, it keeps you honest, you know? Really? Um, I'm curious is like, I was, uh, like earlier today, I was sort of just like talking shit to my wife about uh, Leo Brower, the guitar composer, uh, because his compositions are so guitaristic. Like it's like the instrument comes before the music in a way. And like, I'll, I'll throw some shade at Leo Brower. He's he's got enough acclaim to like. Not I don't, I don't know him. Okay. But he's just like the the Cuban classical guitar composer of like, like he's like the dude. Um, yeah. I'm like, I'm all Dushan Bogdanovich, man. Uh, right. Uh, so for... Uh, somebody like Brower doing like these compositions where it's like, yep, it's on guitar nicely. Um, that kind of irritates me. I'm curious if there's even such a thing as like clarinetistic music. Uh, totally, totally, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and like I don't fit into that world. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't say that with, I'm saying that without like self-deprecation. It's just, it is what it is. You know, like I don't, I, I can't play like that. I'm not going to play like that. It's not going to happen for me in this lifetime. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm aware of that, you know. Um, that ship sailed, but you know, fortunately, I've got enough um, of an idea in place that I can kind of like answer to my own sense of, of virtuosity, which you know, I, I I believe has some foundational structure and integrity. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have to believe it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, wh- I mean, what what does your woodshed look like these days? Um, besides your horn being in the shop. Um, these days it's looking a little rough. Uh, I, I, we rent, we renovated our, our apartment over the summer. So things are still kind of like, um, space wise coming together. Um, but you know, the, honestly, the, the woodshed for me 
is it, it's always sort of changing. Um, I, I, I hmm. right now it the woodshed is empty. I haven't, really <laughs> in, I haven't been in there much because I've been sort of like reconfiguring my studio. Uh, so a lot of my woodshed these days is sort of like working on how my all my electronic components are patched in. Um, you know, building like a, a studio with lots of electronic instruments. There is sort of this maze puzzle aspect to it. How do you, how you want to like optimize it for workflow? Mm -hmm. And so that's you know sadly you know, it's not a very um, satisfying answer, but that's you know at the moment that's where the woodshed is. But but no, actually I take that back because. I've actually been sitting at the keyboard every day, um, like, playing. Not this type, but like I guess they both look like that. But you know, yeah, not, like a like a. I mean, it's a MIDI controller, you know. It's, but it's, not a computer keyboard. Not a computer keyboard. <laughs> okay. Actually, at like you know playing you know scales on the on a quote unquote piano. Mm -hmm. Okay. And kind of just trying to you know expand my harmonic language in uh, kind of like a more conventional way. Interesting. Okay. A little bit of ear training, you know. I feel like uh, for me, like I, I am so seduced by like the researchy type stuff. And like, you know, you're talking about like your signal flow of pedals and stuff like I feel like that's like nearby that. And I just get so seduced by like learning more stuff and yeah. like never actually doing the athletics of like getting the fingers on the fretboard. Yeah. Uh, so like uh, I've just always eschewed athletics entirely. And so it's it's crossed over into the guitar realm. Now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so one one. A couple of constants that are always in the shed for me, um, you know, long tones, long tones. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, for woodwind players, you know, long tones are really like, if you don't practice anything else, practice long tones, um, practice playing notes evenly, you know, mm -hmm. you will, you will never not benefit from that. Um, right. Practice. And then, you know, so if I have like 15 minutes of practice, 20 minutes, yeah, I'll play long tones for a while play a couple scales and you know if i have time you know maybe i'll try and like learn something by ear you know like usually like a like a standard um and then i'll try and, uh, and i'll just play free for a while that's what feels really good but you know to play free with any sort of proficiency like you really need to dial in mm -hmm. the like the fundamentals of the instrument the, the sound production i mean i feel like also having like dialed in ears is essential but like you know that must like I, you already have that but do you work that ever into your routine like uh like becoming more sort of uh keen with your ears and i mean i have a long way like to intervals, go but <laughs> no i mean i have a long way to go with that like i it's so funny like the amount of time um i spend fucking around with my phone you know <laughs> to actually like just open up the app store and be like oh there's all kinds of apps for ear trades yeah. <laughs> like all sorts of shit or oh there's a metronome on my phone like oh maybe i should practice with that <laughs> Dude, yeah 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 practicing is like the least sexy thing ever and it's i'm i'm, I'm incredibly self-conscious about about when i practice so being you know in a one-bedroom apartment's a little tricky mm -hmm. you know because i don't want my wife works from home and you know i don't want to like you know annoy the shit out of people or feel like i am I, i'm in a similar position um however i i guess for shits and giggles i'll show you yeah. my rotating this is my computer is on a little uh, like desk that's on a wall, and I am yeah. turning this like a fucking secret. Oh wow! Now we're got the whiteboard, uh -huh. ornette picture. Yep. Yep. So this yeah, is I've got. Woodshed. Yeah, well, I actually one thing I do in my woodshed. I'll show you something. Hold on. 
I always have uh, different pictures up, frame pictures. Uh, so like right now above my desk, you know, there's a framed picture of Takamitsu. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. Um, so I, I try to change those out pretty frequently. Uh, I've got a picture of Duchamp back there. Uh, I've got interesting. Yeah, like I try to change these things out pretty frequently, but I like having those. Like I like having those those guys watch me. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, you're a big Ornette guy, right? Yeah, definitely. What's your favorite Ornette? Uh, I don't have one favorite. Uh, I mean, it's I guess like I probably maybe it's like a boring answer, but like the period that came just after Shape of Jazz to Come is sort of the stuff I go back to most often, um, purely for enjoyment. Mm -hmm. Um, the town hall concert, the trio record is like an absolute tearjerker. There's that tune on there called sadness. Do you know that tune? Mm -mm. Oh, like it, it rips my heart out of my chest every time I listen to it. Um, it's yeah. Sadness by Ornette is amazing. Um, I, I, I like the primetime stuff. I don't listen to it as much as it seems like everyone's like these days, like in New York, <laughs> like it seems like everyone's trying to do a version of a primetime band. Mm. Um, I mean, I love everything by Ornette. Like he's, I, I don't know that, like even that record he made in like 2006, uh, Sound Grammar. Mm. It's fucking uh, awesome. Mm. It's the two basses, drums, and Ornette. And it's just like Ornette just being very good at being Ornette. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I forget what the album is right now, but um, what's the, the double quartet thing? Uh, I want to say it's just free, free jazz. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I'm, I'm such a big uh, Scott LaFaro dude. Personally. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Charlie Hayden as well. I forgot that that was Scott LaFaro on there. Yeah. Did you see? There's this documentary out now called uh, Fire Music. Hmm. Uh, oh, dude, Scott? No, no. It's this I documentary bet. by this guy Tom Sergal, who uh, is a, uh, a drummer in New York. He, he plays a lot. Uh, he plays a band called um, called Whiteout with his wife Lynn Culbertson. He plays a lot with like Thurston Moore and, and Willie Winant and Sonic Youth guys. But he just spent like over 10 years making this documentary about free jazz. It just came out. And it's like, it's spectacular. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And awesome. there's a lot of really good interviews in it with Bobby Bradford, who was supposed to like, you know, something, I don't know why someone, I've talked about this like on a million podcasts. And like, I don't know why someone hasn't written a book about this, but the jazz scene of Fort Worth, Texas from like, that started uh, for some reason there's a group of musicians born all born in the late 20s early 30s in fort worth texas who are like the best jazz musicians of the 20th century <laughs> it's like ornette coleman john carter bobby bradford um ed blackwell like just like the motherfuckers mm. all came out of fort worth interesting huh yeah <laughs> anyway, I, anyway so, I didn't know that Ornette was from Fort, Fort Worth. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So Bobby Bradford is in this documentary, and he's uh, he, he talks about how like he was he was in school at the time, I think in in, in California or in Texas, and Ornette called him for that date to play on that on that record, and he was like, ah, I can't, I have like finals or whatever. <laughs> and he's just like to this day, like, why didn't I do that record? <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, I, I totally passed up the uh, the segue opportunity when you pulled out that picture of Takamitsu. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I guess like as a guitarist, I'm sort of aware of him through like, you know, Equinox and um, mm -hmm. was it Towards the Sea? Yeah. Um, which are both beautiful pieces. Um, 
what's your connection or like what's uh for like a clarinetist what's your jam with him none i uh <laughs> i mean i just it's just it's 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 beautiful music um there's this piece in particular uh i think it's called then i i twas the wind you know this Mm-mm. oh man it's like this 13 minute long piece with harp um percussion and, and violin and it's just like it's just like such like an ignorant thing i'm about to say it's probably such a disservice to all involved but it's like the most I'm not even fuck it. It's it's if if you like you know that piece Why Patterns by Feldman. Uh, why isn't not the the letter Why, but but like, the question like, like Why Patterns? Gotcha. Yeah, uh, it, I I, I well. hear it as like a very like a more romantic version of that. Okay, really beautiful, really sensual, really like. Um, no, I just love I just love Takamitsu's music. Gotcha. I mean, yeah. like I, I I do too, but I don't quite know how to put my finger on what it is that I like. Um. But, I mean, it definitely feels a little bit more like feels like more like poetry than prose mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like it's like more gestural, more kind of like um, like a little bit more like comfortable with ambiguities or something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He um, I, I think, again, you know, like a person could derive just as much meaning from. From his writing or there's this, there's this amazing book called Confronting Silence and. Mm. Similar to that Feldman book, I think it's actually just a collection. It's not necessarily essays. It's more like a collection of lectures that he gave. Um, you could read that book and never hear a note of his music. And I think, I think be just as moved. Like it's just this really beautiful sort of um, sparse writing that, you know, there's, there's no fat on it. It just it sort of like distills these ideas about music. And it's like really like, I don't want to say it sounds like so cringe, but like, it's very Japanese. Let's just say that it's very <laughs> like there's, there's no wasted words, you know. Gotcha, um, man. I feel like you're like the connoisseur of the fucking music uh, library or something. Like uh, when I was at USC, I would go to the library and like be like, "Oh yeah, here's all this stuff." But it was like mainly in the scores. But I feel like you, yeah, you have the the book books on on point. Oh man, I mean, yeah. There's I have a lot that. Uh, This is the Takamitsu book. I would so highly recommend this. Like, I would say if I had to pick like five books by or about composers, I would definitely throw this in there as like a first call. Awesome. I'll have to scope it out. Yeah. I just have this little book of music theory essays with fucking Milton Babbitt jacking off onto the page. So is it, but I mean, is that stuff like how inviting do you find that writing? Not at all. I mean, like it's, like literally the first sentence is like 70 words and you're like dude fucking we get it man you have a vocabulary (laughs) but i love milton babbitt like he's fucking great but it's just like dude like stop trying to prove something (laughs) yeah i mean that's like you know for me in the last few years you know i've been hoarding all these like really intense like critical theory books you know i'm like i'm looking at my desk right now it's like let's see difference in repetition uh simulacra and simulation uh, and you know, it takes me so long to find any entry point to so much of this stuff. And I have to like reread it and reread it. And like, maybe I digest like a page or two and, and then maybe in like a year or two, something will click and I'll be like, Oh yeah, let me go reread that thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like when those light bulbs finally appear, it's just like, feel like you're not crazy. For sure. Yeah. You're, you're like a big theory guy, right? 
I, I like, yeah, maybe too much. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm big into the theory stuff, but at the same time, like, you know, everybody now, like the whole like buzz or buzz, uh, yeah, like the catchphrase is like, you know, music theory is racist. And it's like, well, it's not even a fucking theory, <laughs> you know, uh, like, yeah, like it's like the acousticians, like the physicists have figured out this shit already. I'm just the musician that's trying to apply it. And so to call right. that theory is kind of ridiculous. Like, I'm, I, I'm not trying to explain why it exists or like what it should be or something like that. But. Yeah. So like, let's let's like as a culture choose to dismiss or look away from however many years of research and like applied research to that, that has like opened all kinds of doors of understanding. Mm hmm for what exactly yeah and i mean i dismissed the fucking like the european stuff long ago and just like you know like i don't listen to mozart or something like it's not that interesting to me <laughs> have you spent much time with that stuff or you just were like i'm at a different place like i don't like i can get down with like your scarlatti's your box uh, like all that yeah. type of stuff like the early stuff but like i don't know like beethoven right like, uh, yeah, I, I hear you i feel like early music is well worth spending a lot of time with absolutely yeah renaissance music and, and and vocal music you know my show or whatever like that stuff is well all at you know to use a contemporary term the evergreen <laughs> uh and then you know the 20th century stuff's amazing but yeah a lot of uh i don't know how much mozart i need yeah and also i mean going to like usc and like being like it's funny they wouldn't let me test out of uh for, like first year theory uh huh. even though i got the test like totally aced or whatever but it's like i have to learn there like you have to say a minus instead of a uh or you have to say min instead of a minus sign or like you can't use a triangle for me it's like dude this is fucking labeling stuff <laughs> wait um, so so as to be to be more consistent with like 17th century music or no, no, no. I mean, it with like jazz stuff. I mean, uh, right. it, like to say like a minor seven chord, like they were like, no, you have to write out M I N seven. And it's like, this is not important to me. I don't think, uh, right. I, I do like to sit around and move numbers around. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. more, more my jam. Yeah. But then what about like critical theory? You spend a lot of time with that stuff, like not music theory, but I mean, I honestly don't really know what that means. Like, I feel like when people say theory, they mean critical theory, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I love me some philosophy. Like, uh, I yeah. can talk about uh, fucking like modes of consciousness or whatever. Like, uh, you know, the my death metal project is eliminativist because it's like eliminative, eliminative materialism. And, like, you know, I'm interested in all that world, but not yeah. so much this like, like even the stuff that like Charlie's into and like Deloitte's or whatever. I'm just like. What are you trying to say, man? Okay, so you like ginger and stuff like more than other types of foods? Like uh -huh. you like rhizomes? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna get hate for this though. So <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I I feel like um like within that universe, like there aren't enough people copying to like confusion. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like I would never, I would never have the balls to say, or like that. It would never occur to me to be like, oh yeah, I get this. Like I want to move on to. I I feel like something like this. <laughs> Difference in repetition. I'm going to have this forever, and maybe at various points in my life, one or two things about it will make sense. And like mm -hmm. I'm perfect, I'm perfectly content with it. Totally. I mean, is that something I should scope out, or should I, I continue maybe. being a naysayer? No, it's all gobbledygook to me so far. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I'm being honest, you know, like I'm sort of at a more like intermediate level. You know, I spend time mm -hmm. with like Paglia. That shit makes a lot of sense to me. You know, but it's also like very plain spoken. You know, like 
I, I gave Adorno a lot of my life and mm. it, it's begun to make sense. You know, that Jacques Attali book makes sense to me. And, you know, I think I want to begin now to understand things on a more esoteric level. Mm. Stuff's like very practical, like economic based stuff, you know? Totally. See, that's that's more my world. And like, I, I'm still not uh, learn, learn it on economics by any means, but uh, mm. like that's, I feel like that is, well, it's still totally not concrete. Like it's like not a science. It's, it's still more interesting to me. And actually, uh, it's kind of funny. Like, I don't know if you uh, agree with this, but I was talking to, uh, I mean, I, like everybody I talk to, I bring this up with, but like, if you look at like a stock market chart, like I like to do like technical analysis with cryptocurrencies and stuff. And it's like, it's musical analysis. It's just uh-huh. on a super huge scale because you're dealing with like this day is essentially a pitch of this amplitude um, right? in some ways. I mean, obviously not, but um, it's a, a giant waveform and like, that's what we deal with. So uh-huh. Are, are you are you a are you a crypto bro? I mean, I don't think a crypto bro, but I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I like cryptography. I like the cypherpunk uh, movement. I yeah, like yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that type of stuff. But you know, I'm I don't have a, a Ferrari. Right. My last name's Lamberton, but I don't have a Lambo. Right, 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 right. <laughs> For some reason, I wrote down your name the other day as Lumberton, and then I was like, oh, that's the town in um in Blue Velvet. Is it? Yeah, it's the town where the 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 movie takes place. I just anyway. watched that like a month ago too. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm curious to talk a little bit about breathwork too because you mentioned mm-hmm. that with uh, Mario's uh, piece, yeah. and I'm also curious what type of lentils you like as that's your comfort food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, generally, I'll, I'll default to green lentils uh, simply because they don't cook as fast, and you by virtue of the fact that they don't cook as fast, I feel like you can sort of imbue all kinds of like more flavor more uh, easily. And I don't like, you know, whether I'm cooking beans or lentils. And I feel like this is kind of a chef thing where like, you know, you can judge a chef. You're vegan, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but you can judge a chef by like how they roast a chicken. Okay. You know, you can judge a chef by like their kachue pepe. I feel like legumes are similar. Um, and you can... I actually had dinner the other night with Mario and Toby and I was showing, we went, I took, it was like, I picked the place and I, I showed, we had these, these, uh, butter beans and I picked up a bean and I was like, you see the chef cooked this perfectly. Like it's perfectly round it maintains its, stru- its structure. And when you bite into it, it's just creamy. You know, the beans aren't broken mm. and like leaking. And so I, like with lentils, like, you know, if I'm making like a doll or, or, you know, um, you know, sure. Red lentils, you know, are really nice. But ultimately, like, I like green lentils that, you know, you can build like a, you know, like a mirepoix, some white wine, uh, maybe some like anchovy, which, you know, you wouldn't do, but um, you can sort of maintain the structure of the lentil itself um, and really get like some pretty deep kind of like bone satisfying flavors in there. Um, You know, like really fragrant. Uh, I made some lentils the other day that were like, you know, false modesty aside, they were like, (laughs) Um, i love me some lentils but i'm just like a a salt and fat guy (laughs) yeah but what do you use like so olive oil or like what's your vegan Uh, fat like coconut oil or yeah Yeah. mostly coconut oil i guess um so another funny thing like i'm actually just skipping past the whole breathwork thing we'll come back to to i I just Uh, i did a breathwork session the other day but uh, go ahead so uh lentils uh boom 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 shit did i lose it um Lentils, fat, coconut oil. 
shit. I might have lost it. Um, well, we'll come back to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, parts. Uh, what was I gonna say? What the breath work? Not about lentils. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. What about lentils? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got it. Um, so when I heard your thing with Tyshawn and when I heard your thing with Justin, um, both of them, I feel like pizza came up so much, mm-hmm. and um, like that's just like a, a thing that's totally foreign to me as like a an Angelino, mm-hmm. um, and you know you're like New York native since however long, um, and I just like in my world, I'm like I feel like the whole thing would be like, oh yeah, this place is where you can get the most restricted dietary options. Sure, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You, like this is the best pizza. I'm like, what you're fucking carbs and tomato sauce. Uh, it's like, man, <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, like a class. So I think, uh, and I've gone on the record as saying this many times, and I'll say it again. Like in my opinion, the best pizza in the United States is in New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. New Haven has a tradition of pizza. I mean, there's, you know, people think about Connecticut. Like, have you spent much time on the East Coast? Not much, no. Okay. I mean, you know, people, I feel like the general perception of Connecticut is like Greenwich, Connecticut, WASP, you know, 1%, mm-hmm. you know, elite power structure people live, you know, and that's like a very small part of Connecticut. Connecticut is by and large occupied by like a pretty... Uh, not to sound, you know, not, I don't, I don't say this like pejoratively, but I also do like sort of lowbrow, like Italian, like working class people, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's who it is. And so there's a culture of like Italian, like Italian American food in, in Connecticut, New Haven specifically, that is like, when you think about like that red sauce shit, you know, people, I have a whole thing with Italian food too, that, you know, I'm going to try not to like, <laughs> um, you know, American Italian food is very different from, you know, Ita- Italy is a very large country. Let's just say mm-hmm. that. So something that you get in like Trentino Alto Adige has nothing in common with something you get in like fucking Sicily or, you know, Puglia or something. Um, but the, tr- you know, the red sauce tradition of American Italian food, I think New Haven's got that shit on lock and, a cl- you know, so they don't even call it pizza. They call it apiz. Mm-hmm. And a classic New Haven apiz is just uh, crust tomato sauce and if you're feeling crazy like some grated parmesan but you don't need it so it's actually vegan by default interesting um you know really what you're dealing with are you know multi-generational you know pizzaiolos who are have been working with the same ovens their family's been working with for 50 60 70 80 100 years mm-hmm. um you know i see a very clear parallel between something like that and you know the rigor of, of music making and sort of devoting yourself to like a really specific craft and how did, so what was my point? So new Haven pizza, <laughs> wait, what was, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Well, I mean, there's something to be said about like the, like, you know, getting your hands dirty. I mean, probably clean, uh, like that sort of hands-on like yeah. culinary thing that um, like, you know, like for instance, with coffee, like an intelligentsia, I feel like has like gotten so polished and like, it's kind of like it assumes that it's the best and then like you go to some little shithole where or like you know some place that you would uh, a snotty barista would call a shithole and it's like this is actually really delicious and it's because like you've like you can't fuck it up because you have like skin in the game and like yeah. you know they have to make it delicious and i feel like i respect that but um i just i have like orthorexic tendencies about uh my my foods <laughs> Well, but it's also, you know, like, let's not forget, you know, context, context, context. You know, mm-hmm. I, the, the best beer I ever had in my entire life, I, the day I die, I'll still remember this beer that I had was, um, it was a very long, stressful day. There was a, 
horrendous like snowstorm in New York. And my wife and I had a trip to Costa Rica. We were the only plane to leave uh, JFK that day. The only plane. Long, crazy day of travel. Got to Costa Rica late at night. I sat on top of this roof and I opened up. Imper- the only beer you get down there is Imperial, which is like probably comparable to like Miller High Life. And after this crazy long day of travel, I opened up the Imperial. I heard the ocean beside me. And I drank the whole thing in one shot. And I, was, I closed my eyes. I can still taste that beer. I can mm. still feel like the ocean air on my skin. And there is no fucking wise ass, you know, IPA that tastes like, you know, a tropical fruit that's ever going to take the place that beer has for me, ever. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? No, no, like, it, it, so, you know, coffee pizza like you know there's plenty of people you know there's all these like high-tech you know pizza makers in new york now that are using like only crazy imported ingredients and a pie costs like 30 dollars, and it's you know this big and it's yeah it's cool it's cool it's good but i want that's not what i want you know i, I want i want to go to sally's in new haven and have some fucking you know illiterate trump supporter making the pies <laughs> you know and he literally knows how to do one thing well and it's make pies that's kind of, that's, that's more my scene, you know. Illiterate Trump supporter cuisine. Um, yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, well, I guess we can talk about breathwork again now that sure, we yeah. like got our culinary uh, um, claims out. Uh, so I mean, I feel like wait, for- wait, real quick, uh, real quick. Some motherfucker got mad at me because uh, there's this sandwich shop deep in Brooklyn called uh, Defante's, which I think, like, without question, the best sandwiches in the world. This is the roast beef roast beef place. Bravo. Exactly. Uh, the, uh, I was talking this, I was telling someone, I was like, you know, Defantes is going to be slamming because when you show up, that's like where all the cops are eating. And they were like, what? How dare you? I was like, no, you don't understand. Like we're talking real New York food. Go to where like the old school, like Italian cops are eating. Like it's incontrovertible. It's going to be the best food. Anyway. (laughs) But like they interpreted it as like this, you know, Blue Lives Matter thing. It's like that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is yeah. these guys know sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if somebody like needs to get some food on the job, then it it probably is going to be good. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm curious about this uh, breathwork session that was a uh, game changing though. Yeah. So I mean, are you familiar with like with breathwork or like what what that entails? I mean, like, so I uh, like for a while I was doing like you know, breath apnea training or apnea breath yeah. training or whatever, like to like, you know, get longer breath holds. I've sort of fallen off with that. Um, and I'm hip to like the, the Wim Hof and like the holotropic stuff. And like, yep. I've sort of tried to like take the whole holotropic thing and like run with that term um, just as like a, a way to avoid saying psychedelic. Um, right. But I mean, beyond that, like I haven't like done it super formally, but uh, I am, I'm, I'm hip to it. Yeah. I mean, so, all right. So, you know, Mario's a dear friend. And, um, you know, we have pretty, like, pretty intense personal conversations. Uh, and he's definitely someone that, like, your, your thing just got really crackly, by the way. I don't know. If, oh, but um, I don't, I don't want to, like, derail. There it is. Good. Um, I had this really, uh, last summer, not, not the one that just passed, but 2020. Uh, a very, very deeply traumatic experience. Um, and it like really, uh, 
trying to think if I should tell you what happened. Um, it, I, I, I had an experience that, you know, was very traumatic. It was far more traumatic than I would have anticipated. That is to say that about a week after this thing happened, just all this create, like all, um, all this stuff was like coming at me mentally and emotionally that I, I did not have, I didn't know where it was coming from. I thought, I thought it was going crazy. I thought I, I, uh, uh, sorry if I'm like, um, so I, I called up Mario. And I said, look, man, I got to talk. Like I need some help right now. And I explained to him what was happening, what I was going through. And he was like, you gotta, you gotta call this person that Alice, that I, that I, I studied breath work with for years. Like I, this is now's the time. And basically I went to this, this person, um, I explained to her what had just happened, uh, and what I was going through. And what I said to her is because, you know, I'd done therapy, like talk therapy at many times in my life. Um, and, and I, I don't have any interest in that shit at all anymore. You know, and what I told to her is like, look, I, I know what I'm dealing with in terms of childhood trauma. I know what I'm dealing with in terms of like generational trauma, um, that you inherit from. And I'm happy to like talk about that stuff to lay groundwork with you. I don't want to talk about, and I don't want to find out about things that I already know. I don't want to talk and find out about things that I already know that I know. I want to like look at stuff that, um, that I don't know that I don't know because the thoughts that I'm having, things that are coming, coming at me, um, I don't have any, I don't know what I'm dealing with. So what this woman does, um, and uh, is it's, it's essentially like, like fully integrative therapy. So we talk for a while and then she sort of, we do these breath exercises um, to focus on parts of the body that are being impacted by whatever um, emotional trauma impact weight that you're dealing with. You do the breath exercises and then you kind of come out of it and she asks, you know, like what you experienced during those exercises. And then you sort of do it again and you, she kind of guides it a little bit. And you do, so you do like an interval like that, like two or three times. And just without question, um, every session I have with her is transformative. You know, the talk is, is, um, it's helpful, you know, and it's just like talking to like a really wise friend who, you know, has good perspective, but she knows how, you know, after decades of doing this stuff, how to guide these breath exercises that like every single time something gets like jarred loose and it, and it, it's, um, you know, the conversation we were having the other day and like, you know, I don't know if this is like too like personal for this type of podcast, but like, you know, I'm, um, I, I mentioned I quit drinking and, you know, I've, I've, I've been doing like the AA thing and I've been, you know, kind of really trying to explore this through like a, um, like a prescribed path. And, you know, what I told her was that, look, you know, something that's come up the first week I, I, I did without drinking. Every evening at around seven o'clock, I would start feeling this like rawness, this like, and my heart would just like, I start weeping in my heart, like my chest just like, like would ache. And what I, I told her was like, I, I realized that there's just this pain that's there. And clearly the alcohol has been, you know, I've, has kept me at like some safe distance from it. So now that I'm not, you know, getting, you know, not, not drink, you know, stopping, you know, putting down the bottle is like the easy part, you know, for me, anyway. but like inviting that pain in closer and just realizing, okay, I guess, you know, I live with pain, you know, like this isn't like, I'm not going to fix this. I'm not going to fucking, you know, hit a switch, you know? So now the challenge is like 
living with with pain and you know so we'll do these breath exercises that you know i don't know i'm, I'm kind of like talking all over the place but like um just what i need to live with this stuff in a healthy way becomes clearer and it could be very concrete things you know like comfort like um how i what I surround myself with, what I, um, being really like cognizant of what I need, you know, I, I sound, I, sorry, I, I don't mean to sound like some new age, like no, self-help no, no, no. guy, but, um, when you did talk about the big guy, well, yeah, I mean, the big guy is important to me, <laughs> the big man. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know maybe it's like an age thing you know now that i'm like in my 40s you know i guess this is like shit that just like starts coming at you but with within the breath work i have found um just like a really great sense of of peace with myself that i haven't known before yeah. you know i'm still a fucking psycho i'm still like a disaster but um it, it's helping me like um have uh a heightened sense of compassion, um, not just for others and, you know, but like for myself, which is, you know, historically been very hard. For me. Absolutely. Hearing you talk about it, um, like here and, and previously, like it reminds me that like, I should get back to that shit because like, there are definitely times where I can feel that I have more capacity in terms of compassion or uh, patience right now. Yep. Um, when I am regularly doing breath work, but like, I feel like, you know, like, uh, I have some like physical ailments that I've like been sorting out and like once they're sort of basically gone, then you're like, okay, I don't have to sort them out anymore. And then they come back and you're like, oh shit, like they came back. And so like, if you don't keep up some sort of minimal practice, then they, they come back. But if you, uh, like, I feel like I have a lot easier of a time being like, I'm going all in now. And then right. like, I solve something and then I forget about it and come back. And so like, yeah, I need to be a little, I think that's the natural course, you know, and like, I don't, you know, like the drinking thing, like, I'm not, I'm not saying like, I'm never going to drink again, but I'm, I'm using a, this time right now to, you know, kind of have like a greater sense of presence and, um, whatever. I don't I know. That might sound cliche, but like, it's, yeah, yeah. The breath work for me has been the most transformative thing I've done for myself outside of music. Um, yeah. What what type of a uh, like is there a specific type of breath work that Alice does, or um, is it just kind of like she feels out needs and it's like no, she's full bag. Uh, I'm again, you know, as I said at the start of this conversation, I, I'm gonna. I, I, I heard, heard, yeah, I would say anybody that wants to look her up, the name of the group is One Breath Circle. Um, she's amazing. She, she does Zoom sessions, so if you're not you know nearby, you know you can you can you can do those, but like. Yeah, uh, you you can look her up. You know, I, I don't want to I don't want to speak for her. You know, bona fides or whatever. Um, I think I said that right. Bona fides. Heard um, well. Uh, I, I want to keep on pushing you into uh, uh, trauma territory or anything. Um, yeah, no, I'll talk about it. I, I'm curious. Uh, so, I mean, you said you no longer doing the five hundred four nine podcast. Um, no. Are you still doing that label? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I put out all my stuff through it, so. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 
No, I, 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 it's funny, man. I have the, I actually have the itch to podcast again. I want to, I, I actually love podcasting. I just don't know what the fuck I would podcast about. Mm. Like your, 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 your thing kind of, you talk to all kinds of people, right? I mean, like, I feel like I'm finding that when I talk to musicians, it ends up a lot better. But um, initially, the idea was to talk to like everybody. Um, in my like sort of catch, like my catchphrase I'm going with is like uh, music, mind, and magic. Like, yes. like sort of dabble in the esoteric, but um, sort of also like, like I like talking to people that know about consciousness shit. But like, mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, it's like I I'm kind of only an expert about music and coffee. <laughs> so like, uh, you gotta talk about those. And I'm, I'm tired of talking to coffee people. Um, yeah, talk to like yeah. three or four, and um, you know, if somebody can do the physics, like I talk to this dude that's into like the physics of filter coffee, and it's super interesting. But um, it's getting so so high tech and stuff that now it's like unless you have a phd in physics you can't really keep up so i'm like i, I can't do it <laughs> right 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 um so I'm, I'm curious though uh what what do you think like a label or an imprint really means these days and um i'm sort of curious if you have any thought on like nfts if uh that's anything that tickles your fancy no i don't even know what the fuck they are like i know it stands for like non-fungible non-fungible token mm -hmm. um no, I'm not. I'm not smart enough to really even understand what the concept is. Yeah. Uh, the terminology makes it like kind of like a barrier of entry. Um, it kind of seems like a Ponzi scheme or something. I, I think that it's there's so much like cool stuff that will come out of it, but right yeah. now it's like yeah, it's, it seems like money laundering basically. Like it's like right, oh yeah, you're selling gifts for uh, like you know uh, just like little JPEGs or whatever for like a million dollars. Are you kidding me? That's just money laundering, but uh, I feel like there is some really interesting stuff that could come out of it. Like, yeah, um, in terms of like, you know, sort of like taking Spotify out of the equation algorithmically. Yes, like we have we have the ability to do that. Like, you don't need Spotify. No, no, no. I um. Okay, so what is the value of a label or imprint? I mean, I think you know historically it was the only way to get your stuff out there, and. You know, it's kind of funny to think, you know, if you think about the way the music business is now, which is a fucking joke, but if you think about like, you know, the like classic stereotype of like a cigar chomping, you know, music executive, mm -hmm. you know, it's really easy to sort of be dismissive of that or even, you know, disgusted by it. But, you know, there's something to be said for those cigar chompers because thanks to those cigar chompers, we have Ornette Coleman, we have John Coltrane, and we have, you know, Jimi Hendrix, and we have Pink Floyd, and we have all this, like, incredible music that, you know, found its way to this massive stage, you know, through those, those channels. And obviously, I mean, are, are you a Mark Fisher guy? Uh, not, not really i'm like into that general world yeah but, like uh, mark fisher's never landed for me but okay uh, uh, I, I know plenty of people that love him so um go well, on. I, well i mean one, one thing i'm like really sort of in tune with with mark fisher is like being immediately distrustful slash dismissive of any kind of like poptimism you know and like i i, I you know i think it was like yesterday or the day before people online were all pissed off about um uh pitchfork has decided to revise their 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 reviews of certain records that they had like shit on in the past. Um, and if but so, I was looking at Pitchfork for the first time in years, and it's like, what the fuck is this website? It's just it's just like 
weird pop and like hip hop that you know i mean i don't want to sound like like an elitist but i don't really see this as being like particularly interesting music you know solange or whatever you know I'm, maybe i'm missing something but so it seems to me like a label these days is has more in common with sounds so dumb but like just it's just it's 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 just like cynical business like that the, that that aspect of introducing the world to the ornettes like it, it's just completely done it's you know branding deals and it's you know it's just it so for people like us you know i, I mean i i put everything out on a label called 5049 records and all that is really is like a stamp to put on the you know the back of the cd like i I don't know that it gives me any clout it, i don't think it does but i don't know that any label that would be putting out this kind of music is going to do anything better or differently than i can um so yeah i i, I don't have a smart answer like i mean it seems like if people aren't using Bandcamp to their advantage they're missing out like independent artists like Bandcamp is really phenomenal and um i mean i guess you know like five five zero four nine you know as much as i'm loath to use this word or to put it this way like there's like some branding involved and you know i did a podcast for a number of years and helped bring attention to the thing and uh I, you know, I've put out, I think, 11 records on the label. They're all, I've never put out a record by another artist. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's not important to have a label. Um, when you were talking about the, the Bean Dinner Night uh, with Mario, you said Toby, right? Yeah. That's like Toby Driver? Yeah, exactly. I think uh, I saw him do some sort of like, you know, like tweet storm rant about like, you know, like Spotify and like, yeah. kind of like, you know, let's all fucking jump ship together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, it does occur to me that like there's something different about the independent artist and like the mainstream artist where like we need a different whole world than like all these people that are just like super popular. And that seems to me where like the NFT thing comes in because like there's so much like power to like uh, come together and have a coherent sort of cooperative thing. Mm -hmm. Like it makes me think of like the GameStop thing, where it's like mm -hmm. these little nerds on Reddit fucking got rich at the expense of hedge fund people because they were like cooperative and like organized, and it wasn't even like a big deal. It was just like casual, and mm -hmm. so um, that seems like a, a cool way to just be like, yeah, like independent musicians kind of unite and have some sort of connection in a, a good way. But I mean, like, of course, nobody's gonna be like, yes, let's all jump ship at the same time to Bandcamp, but like, yeah, Bandcamp I mean, does definitely have our interests, uh, you know at heart a lot more than other places well i i feel like you know there was a you know how old are you uh, 33 33 i mean there was you know i remember as like a teenager you know if you wanted to go buy a cd you know this was like the early mid 90s you know you could go to like the independent stores and find the cool shit but if you went to walmart you know that had a cd section it was only going to be what you know uh you know fucking creed or whatever was like insanely platinum selling artists so it was just understood that you don't go to walmart for cool interesting music you know whatever that might be and i feel like spotify is the walmart of music and yeah people like us just shouldn't even engage them at all and like it would require some you know general 
collectivist sentiment and like genuine like belief in in some kind of collectivism. And you know, I so some of the records I've put out, I've intentionally not put on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Uh, one just because like my my like stubborn sensibility says fuck Spotify. That that that's a platform that's not good enough for this music. But also part of me that's like, I just want to see what the difference, like if I put something on Spotify, I have one record on my label that's on Spotify, I'll put another one that's not on Spotify and just sort of observe how they do in the quote unquote marketplace, what kind of reviews they get, uh, what kind of snowball of, you know, career stuff might happen. And quite frankly, you know, at the level, level that I'm at, like I haven't seen Spotify be helpful in any way. Um, there's no reason to have my music on Spotify. It's, it's helpful to have my music on Spotify so that I can share it with my civilian normies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where it's helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, financially, forget about it. You know, I mean, they are pirates. Don't get it twisted. There's no other, you know, they're, they're not. It, Spotify ultimately best serves the people who cannot wait to step over their, their fucking peers. That's who it's for. You know, it is completely anti-collectivist. It is the biggest carrot, you know, to be dangled in front of it. I mean, I mean, they're doing this shit now where like, I mean, they started doing this thing where you could pay them to get put on playlists. Yeah, it's insane. Now they're doing a thing where they want you to pay for your new music to show up if they search your name. Like, it's it's just absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I, I think, but yeah, I think, you know, like, like Toby, for 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 people to jump ship and have it be meaningful, like there does have to be something that resembles like union mentality, where we all say at one time we're not showing up for this, and it could be meaningful. Um, I don't use Spotify. I don't. I don't fuck with that shit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, I keep on calling it aesthetic climate change because it's just like it's it's like litter everywhere. Like I can't find a fucking coal train thing back when I would use it because it's like. The best of Coltrane, like here, right. here's everybody playing Coltrane. It's like, dude, Jesus Christ, like you know, I just. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, if if you want to, if you want to, I was explaining this to you know to a friend of mine the other day, who's like, I was like, look, if you want to understand like late stage capitalism very easily, just look to Spotify. It's literally, you know, I I mean, Spotify is listed as one of the most competitive places to work. I, I know two people that work for Spotify and like, I don't begrudge them because they're like 20 something year old, mm-hmm. you know, women who went to like whatever bullshit liberal arts school. Um, and they're following that jive, but you know, they, they tell me about these like work parties they have, they, they, they'll have staff parties where they'll have Beck do a private concert for the staff. It's like, so, so who's getting paid in this situation? The hundred fucking people that work for Spotify and Beck. Meanwhile, you know, the thousands, millions of other artists, you know, are there to build that for them. And it's, it's bullshit. You know, you can, if you can't figure out how to make money off of selling a thousand units of something, then, you know, you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you know, you'll have these movie studios that won't take a chance on a, you, you could guarantee a, a film studio. Like I have a project that's going to make you a million dollars. You're gonna make a million dollars, and they'll pass on it because they don't want the million dollars. They want, you know, a hundred million dollars. Same kind of like ass backwards thinking, and you know. So yeah, you you have to understand that if you are an artist that's putting your music on Spotify, you are choosing to be like a little femur bone in their catacomb 
pile of bones that supports the one or two things up top. It's yeah. It, the thing with the NFTs that is sort of exciting to me is that there's the potential like control scarcity. Um, so like for instance, like you could have a self-destructing album or something like that. So it's like right. it's kind of like the Wu Tang album where it's like right. you're only gonna be able to listen to it if like you have access to it. And so. And who was it? it was Farmer Martin Shkreli, Farmer Bro, <laughs> that bought it. <laughs> I, I want to he recently sold it or something. Um, right. There's some. I don't follow that stuff, but uh, I mean, there's like that type of thing. If we could open source that type of thing to like allow artists to create, like to turn up the value knob on their thing, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, because um, if you can only have a thousand, you know, copies of something, um, and it's like protected <laughs> cryptographically, right? A lot of potential. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, like basic fundamental concepts of, of economics, you know, scarcity, supply and demand. And I, you are immediately, when you put something on Spotify, you are immediately declaring the value of it, which is zero. Yep. Uh, but not in like the generous way of giving a gift to somebody, of right. just saying, I want this to exist in the market, in the hopes, you know, that like same jive of exposure that people have been falling for, musicians have been falling for forever that's what it is mm-hmm. um and that you know the, the idea is they have you by the balls because you want people to hear your music yeah exactly what's gonna you know you can get a licensing deal fucking mazda is gonna call you up and they're gonna put your fucking solo clarinet piece in a commercial like it ain't gonna happen i, I want to hear that uh uh Michesco piece on a Kia commercial or a exactly <laughs> exactly yeah uh, uh well apparently hours here i feel right like there's like one or two things i wanted to holler at you about um, um i mean i guess like the the diatribes against spotify is a good way to sort of wrap up I mean, i'm curious if you just have any um pieces of wisdom as a podcast host and a record label uh runner Mm-hmm. Uh, for somebody that is doing the same thing or for somebody like me that's doing that thing mm-hmm. podcasting i would say there's a couple fundamentals that you got to follow one is consistency in your output not like i mean quality yes but like how often you actually put it out because mm-hmm. um, if you aren't putting it out consistently um with like you know people know they can get it every monday or every second monday or whatever like you've already sort of lost a little bit like that's that's podcast culture it needs to happen regularly so consistency of like the rate that it comes out specifically yeah like yeah, yeah yeah consistency of like length or anything too or uh both both i always think it's weird when you like check out a podcast and one episode's two hours and another episode's 25 minutes like it's a little doesn't make sense to me um uh, but you know it has to come out at a, uh at a consistent clip um i don't know avoid dead air uh, you know, just keep the conversation going no matter what. Even um, Don't receive USPS uh, deliveries. Whatever. I mean, right. I, I actually love that podcasting. The podcast that I enjoy listening to, it becomes so, like, unprecious. And I, like, aesthetically, I actually prefer that. I'd much rather listen to, like, you know, Comtown or, like, Red Scare uh, than, you know, This American Life or something, or Serial that's, like, so polished and put together, like, a broadcast, right. you know? Like, fuck it, I don't, I don't want to hear, like, intro music. I don't even want to hear people introduce themselves. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, so consistency of output, um, no dead air. 
<laughs> I mean, I, I think of it like zine culture, you know? Like, I'd rather just it be unprecious and, you know, for me personally, and just, like, come out frequently and, you know, the shit that I'm really into, I'm like, you know, I look forward to it coming out, like, you know, mm-hmm. whenever it comes out. Um, And get cool people on, man. Call Mario. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I feel like I've, I've got a decent amount of, like, uh, interesting people so far. Yeah, no, um, definitely, definitely. I really uh, enjoyed the coffee conversation with Daedalus. Oh, word. Cool, cool. You'll see yeah, that one. yeah. Um, Dude, one of these guys that I have coming up uh, later this month. Actually, I just uh, Nick McMaster just got back to me, so we're gonna do that in a few days. Yeah. But, um, there's this dude who teaches at University of Wisconsin who does exomusicology. Um, Bill Satheris or Satheris. It's man, he's a trip. Like his website is like, it's literally the study of space uh, or like alien music theory, basically. Whoa. Yeah, it's a trip. Uh, so it's gonna be. It's gonna be a weird one to. Yeah, I saw you talk to um, David Rothenberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he makes music with like whales and insects and shit. Yeah, yeah, totally a trip. Yeah, yeah I mean that was a interesting one. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I feel like I should have like actually talked about your album more, but Citadels and Sanctuaries this is the name of the album out on Five Hundred Four Nine Records. Um, Scoop it. <laughs> um i enjoyed listening to it and like uh there's definitely like a lot of like nice uh you know uh vibes coming through or harsh vibes um, yeah, a lot man. of like you know environments to inhabit so um, i recommend everybody else check it out i appreciate um, that uh anything else you want to say before we wrap up no man i really appreciate this it was a lot of fun hey dude great talking yeah it's great talking uh, i'm gonna be out there in november uh playing a show november 27th in la nice uh we're at uh, it's called two 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 zero arts, two thousand two hundred twenty arts, something like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll email it to you. Cool. Yeah, yeah it's you gonna be cool. Well, right on. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for talking, dude. It's awesome. Peace. Peace.